0: Trigger warning, this podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode.
1: I mean, Warren Jeffs had 10,000 followers when he became the leader, so if they understood why they were abusing me or not was really sketchy i don't think they did all he had to say is this girl deserves this you should kill her you know like and they do have a doctrine that says and that that's when it comes into play where i was using the doctrine against them it says if you shed innocent blood then you will never make it into heaven So every person he would send to kill me would, like, ask me, you know, what did you do? Because they don't want to shed innocent blood accidentally, because that's like a doctrine. And I would tell him, you need to research this thing, because, like, you know, you don't want to have that on your hands.
2: Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell,
0: And I'm Collier Landry, and this is the Survivor Squad Podcast.
2: Yay, another episode down.
0: Another episode
2: Yes, I'm excited for today. And before we get into to, before we get into today, I think we should talk about the idol.
0: I was going to say the same thing. You were talking about coercive control, coercion, uh just weird stuff that kind of, I mean, kind of sort of dovetails into what our next guest guest kind of talk uh, talks about. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. You're watching The Idol. I'm watching The Idol. A lot of people are watching The Idol. What do you think? It's a trip. Yeah.
2: It's a trip. It it reminds me so much of John Meehan. It reminds me so much of my past toxic relationship where I was, you know, um, hit by the car um so it reminds me of a lot because especially the third episode this last episode you see him get a lot more control over her you see him he's in the house he is establishing his ground there he literally hits her cook in the face because the cook is like admiring her body because that's what he does he's paid to make her food for her body to get her on the right nutrition track yeah so you know and i wouldn't be like doing that with my trainer to be honest but
0: it's just all so weird it's just it's a it's a wild show it it, and i I don't know i mean (laughs) i'm still trying to come i love the song
2: but that even is so plotted Like that is to get her to like, be like, okay, this is my new family and really coerce these thoughts into her mind. You know, she lost her mother. She's vulnerable on that. And narcissists, these predators, they like to, and not everyone's a narcissist, but when you're a predator, you like to prey on the person's weakest moments.
0: Yeah. That's my family. We don't like each other very much. (laughs) It just just trips me out.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so true. Well, you know, speaking of family, our next guest was taught to be in something because of her family. And it's so interesting how you, because you want a family, because you have a family, the dynamics of the family and what you have to do in order to be accepted sometimes.
0: It's terrifying. Um, so who is our guest?
2: We have Brielle Decker. She is the 65th wife of Warren Jeffs.
0: He is from the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, which is different than the Church of Latter-day Saints, which we're gonna find out from uh, Brielle's story. And she was in the documentary, the Discovery Plus documentary, Prisoner of the Prophet, where you know she spills all the tea. It's It's wild.
2: Yeah. But there's also so many documentaries out there. Eat,
0: eat, keep sweet, pray and obey or something like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of documentaries out there. So be sure to check hers out, check out this episode and you'll learn a lot more.
0: Yeah, let's get into it.
2: get into your story and your journey today so
1: I call what I went through cult violence not everybody goes through domestic violence there's a lot of good relationships what I went through not everybody goes through either even if they are born into a cult a cult to me is basically a group of people that um are very extreme in their beliefs and to a detrimental state. That's kind of how I look at it. So I grew up in the FLDS, which is fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. It's a branch off of the Latter-day Saint group and they have the same foundational doctrines, but they are very more extreme. They take them to a very heightened, uh, extreme level. And in my experience anyway, um, yeah, they, they have uh, in the FLDS, they believe in one leader, a prophet. And that leader, whatever he says is right. And he can never lead the people astray. And it's called the one man rule. So basically, there's only one man that makes all the rules and everybody has to follow without question because he can't lead them astray. God wouldn't allow him. He would die before he could lead them astray so that's what they believed and in the mormon faith i don't think it's that strict i think they act, the LDS mainstream they do have one prophet but they also have a quorum of people that help vote and make decisions and when the new prophet is is um when the last one dies and the new prophet starts his reign of being the prophet um they all the people have a vote in that where in the flds we were taught as children, that God chooses the leader. And if you don't want to follow him, then that's on you. So that's how Warren Jess became the leader. He, um, his father was the leader before him. And he taught us, he taught me when I was um, in first grade. My first grade teacher was his first wife. So he was the principal of the school, and he taught all of us that god chooses the next leader and then when his father got old and passed away he said i'm the god chose me if you want to follow then follow if you don't then you're out okay so i want to throw in here like i um did testify against warren last september in 2022 yeah in a class action case that we won of course so anyway that's just out there so that people can you know listen to that if they want more than just the documentary because sometimes the documentary has things in between but it's really good I do like the documentary it's just yeah another way if you're like technical (laughs) so basically what happened for me was I went I I married Warren just at 18 in an arranged marriage Um, my family didn't dare tell me even at the time that they didn't want me to because they would lose all their investment, their family, all my sister and brothers. So my father tells me now I didn't want you to marry him. But he didn't dare tell me in there because he would have lost my mother at that time. And it ultimately in the end he did lose everybody because I escaped. But anyway, um he uh he doesn't hold it against me, just so you know. But <laughs> so I got married in an arranged marriage to the to Warren Jeff's um the next day I um I saw red flags that night and he sent me back to my father's house cuz I hesitated to his advances toward me and I just was like uh, I don't know what's going on so he he actually sent me home and um he, it was his 65th wedding and my first so like of course there's going to be a difference but he didn't care. He's the leader, he's supposed to be perfect. And so He was mad at me for hesitating. He sent me home. I Mm -hmm. started to think really hard about everything I'd been taught because he didn't act like I had been taught he was going to act. You know, they told me he was perfect, you know, and when I met him, he seemed like he had a lot of red flags, like he was kind of an abuser. In reality, his trainings didn't sound like that to me growing up. I was so used to them he actually was an abuser so the next morning he requested i go to a meeting in the morning and it's actually the meeting that's in the in the other documentary keep sweet Praying Away." it talks about that and it's uh it talks about a meeting the last meeting he came to in colorado city he requested i see that so i went to that meeting and he went down the aisles and he passed out corrections to prominent men in the community told them they were no longer worthy of their families and could they had sat on the stand for years. So we had a lot of trust and confidence in these men. And he wanted me to see that if I had just seen that on my own, I think it wouldn't have hit me so hard, but because he wanted, he requested, I watch that. I felt like he was sending the message to me that there was no hope. But he did request. I go to another meeting right after. And in the next meeting was a secret meeting. And he talked about how he took his children away from the property in Healdale because he was running from the law. He did not want them to be questioned by the law at all. So he was hiding them in a different state, in a different place. And he secretly took them away. And that all kind of made sense. And then he said, but God revealed that not one of the mothers that gave birth to those children were worthy to go with their children. And I was like, that's a red flag. I didn't say that, but because I, I, nobody wanted to hear the questioning comments that wasn't allowed. I would get severely punished if I voiced that, but that's what I thought. So what my conviction within myself is like, I know there's all these red flags. I see all these red flags. I could run right now, or I could go check on those kids. And that's what I did. So I became like the witness from the inside. I went to Texas. I observed and what I saw is that those children had less resources than people that go into foster care adoption. I know that's not the best thing, but they had no hope of stability. They Every person who was put over them was just called a caretaker and they would be rotated as soon as they started to bond. So basically they had no hope of stability. And And if you think about it in a light of like, why would he do this? I know now he's a pedophile and that's, they don't want him to bond. They don't want him to trust anyone to tell on them. So that I believe makes sense if you think of it like that. Um, As far as like um, my own experience, after I recognized this pattern, I started to question even deeper and it talks about in the documentary, it talks about the secret meeting that I went to in Texas that was really horrific where he basically tricked us into becoming accomplices and I didn't realize that there was children in the room and I only agreed for survival cuz I'm like in this compound in Texas with um a gate around it and a and a um you know I didn't have an exit route at all it had a, a guard tower they're watching and they and they would monitor us they had cameras all over and they would Um, it was just, so I agreed to do what he said and then I figured out there was kids in the room and then I was like, oh my goodness, like I, that's not okay. So I actually walked out of that meeting and wrote to him and told him I need more time. I didn't actually, I was in so much survival mode that I didn't actually confront him on his, on his beliefs. I was like, if I do that, he's for sure going to be mad at me. So, and he won't let me leave this place.
0: Did he take you to Texas? Is that how you got to Texas? Yeah. So that was part of like your sort of indoctrination. So you go to these secret meetings or the the first meeting where he separates the men from their families <laughs> arbitrarily. Yeah. And then you go to the secret meeting where you find out well the secrets behind all of this. And then he sends you to Texas to be indoctrinated and see. That's and where the just, he sent
1: the kids. And that's and,
0: and, where and, I went. And you went you but he sent you there specifically to see the kids?
1: Well, he sent me there because he said, God, that said, that's where he wanted me. And that's where he had the kids. And that was my, my hope was that I could check on the kids. Because I wasn't a wife that gave birth. So I could go where yeah he was having mothers that never gave birth, go where the kids were. And I just got married. So
2: that's such heavy manipulation because he's using your emotions And then he's basically threatening you, too, because he's showing you that he's excommunicating these people, basically. And then basically saying, I can dispose you as well. And there's a situation going on where these kids need help. And so he's using all of your emotions. So I'm just so sorry.
1: Yeah, he That's he true. does that a lot. Even people in the FLDS today, I have compassion for them. A lot of them have causes. They're taking care of their mom or they're taking care of their siblings or they don't all believe in it, but they can't yeah. tell you that. In my story, um I I wrote to him. I told him I don't want to be a part of this. I you know, I didn't say it directly. I just kind of in survival mode, you kind of have to do whatever it takes. So I just told him I need more time. You know, I need more time to process all this. I need to get away from this compound and go process this before I go to any more of that stuff. But I I didn't confront him. And some of the wives actually did confront him. He had like 65. And now, at the end of when he got incarcerated, he had 79. So I didn't actually confront him. Some of them did. And I watched how he treated them. I was like, I just need to get out of here. So I wrote to him and told him in a, kind of a nice way. I just need more time. And then they, the people that confronted him, he would come back around and he would say, you can't leave. You need to go pray harder. You need to do this. You need that. He was really angry at them. But with me, he, he kind of bought into my story. He was like, oh, okay. You know, he treated me like kind of like silly and all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, this is great. I got really excited at the end when I was walking out the door. And then he started getting concerned <laughs> I was like, this is great. I'm walking out of here. So I, I left, I got on the ride. He he did act concerned. He waved at me with like this concerned look at the end. And I was trying to hide that. I was so excited, but I got away. I went to a place in Vegas. It was a house in hiding. He had a caretaker, a family with a man that was watching over me all the time. And I couldn't go outside didn't get any groceries they did all the shopping they would make sure somebody's watching us like 24 7. i was put on 24 7 watch that's what it says in the documentary um i went around to the the seven ladies that were living in the house and told them i'm not praying anymore i'm not going back to that place and in my mind i thought i'm not going back until he gets caught by the law i knew he was on the fbi's most wanted he had told us that I was like, yeah, he's going to get caught, and I'm just going to hang out in this house until he's caught, (laughs) pretty much.
0: You were how old at the time now? You were still 18, 19?
1: I was 19, I believe, by this time. By the time he called me into that secret meeting, I had been transported to the house that was the Dream Center one time for like four months, and then I came back where the kids were in Texas. Like, he transferred, that's what his charges were for me in the class action was trafficking over state lines. And so, um, yeah, he, he got, I, and then I wrote to him and told him I want to, I kind of played it safe still. I just told him I'm not praying. I don't want to go back until I feel like I'm ready. I'm just going to read. So I used his own doctrine against himself a lot. And I believe it gave me opportunities. People around me all wanted to hear his interpretations and that's all only thing they wanted to hear. So only books I had was his words, but it actually saved my life. Because I would read all of his stuff and um, that's what they wanted to know. Now I don't hardly use it. But at that time I used it a lot. That's so smart.
0: Wow. That's incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's, I just read and read and read for years. I actually did for like at least a year, maybe a year and a half, two years before he was actually caught by the law. And they were continued to have these secret meetings in Texas. I wasn't involved in those. When I did hear how bad it got in the end, I was horrified, but I believed it because it got so bad. They had the the 12-year-old tied up and all that, like it was just, and that room was filled with people and it was just horrible. And nobody stepped up to to rescue her. Nobody dared. I'm like, everybody should be, but they all were so, in their own cage in their mind and in their own cage in the physical world.
0: You said they have a tw- a 12-year-old girl tied up?
1: A 12-year-old little girl, he tied up and raped in mm-hmm. front of everybody.
2: If wasn't it a multitude of people raping her as well?
1: I don't know. I didn't ever listen to all of those audios. It's way too triggering for me, but I knew it was true because of what I went into in Texas. He was. I was in the introduction, and I turned around After he convinced us to take off our clothes, there's like five adults in the room. He turned around. He says, now turn around. And he had us like in like, we didn't realize what was going on. He just said, you know, stay focused on me. And he'd talk and talk and talk. And he said, if you turn around, I'm going to like, you know, it would be a punishment. So we did hear like the door opening, closing behind us. And it talks about this in the documentary. But I didn't realize it wasn't the same person going in and out, you know, I didn't know what was going on. Well, after I turned around, when he said I could look behind me, the whole room was filled with people and it actually had underage brides in the room. So that's when I walked away. And that's what I said in the court trial in September. Also, I was like, I didn't go back. I became a target because of that. Because, you know, I had to confront him. I had to figure out a way to successfully avoid being an accomplice from the time I knew that he was doing things like that. And it, And there's other stories. Like I've heard other ex-wives say I had littler kids on the property. So when he brought me into that meeting, I just went along with it because like, I didn't want to get sent away from the property and make my littler kids, two years old and stuff, more vulnerable. So I just did anything he said to try to stay, you know, those are all stories I think the court should hear and make decisions on. But for me, I became a target. I did walk away and I became like, that's why he put a hit out on me, and he was the the top of this whole pyramid, and he had all these loyal, loyal followers that didn't really understand what was really going on in his secret meetings all the time. They just believed that I had done something wrong, and I deserved what he said. So I had potentially have ten thousand abusers because he had t- ten thousand followers by the time he became the leader, and they didn't understand why. They just believed that I must have done something.
0: When you say you had ten thousand abusers, what do you mean?
1: I mean Warren Jeff's had ten thousand followers when he became the leader, so if they understood why they were abusing me or not was really sketchy. I don't think they did he all he had to say is, "This girl deserves this, you should kill her you know like and they do have a doctrine that says and that that's when it comes into play where I was using the doctrine against them. It says, if you shed innocent blood, then you will never make it into heaven. So every person he would send to kill me would like, ask me, you know, what did you do? Because they don't want to shed innocent blood accidentally. Because that's like a doctrine. And I would tell him you need to research this thing because like, you know, you don't want to have that on your hands. And also, the other side of it, they believe in blood atonement, which is basically killing somebody if it's just so if I had really committed a serious crime according to the doctrine one of the crimes cuz they believe in works they would shed blood if it was just but they wouldn't do it in public they don't believe in publicly doing that it's all secretive and so like I had to fight for my life for 3 years when he went to prison he um that's when he sent like all his loyal followers after me because he had lost his opportunity to make me an accomplice more and more. So I did hang out in those houses till he got caught by the FBI.
0: So when people, so these killers, these people would come to you and say, I'm here to kill you because of Warren Jeffs?
1: No, they didn't say, I'm here to kill you. They would come to me and they would just say, you know, what is going on? You know, they wouldn't actually talk like, because they don't do it in public. They actually created like a secret code that they would, because they didn't want to get caught on the cameras either. But it got worse and worse and worse. Yeah. For three years of constant harassment, constant like using the scriptures, every single new caretaker I had to, because they would, it was all coming from Warren Jeff. So like when one caretaker would decide that I didn't deserve this, I didn't, I, they couldn't find anything just, you know, like, any just reason to proceed he would send me to another caretaker and start over but it wouldn't start completely over it'd kind of start off where I left off a lot of times because like Warren Jess was learning through the whole process too so he would start with a new person who had new ideas and try to get them because he's in prison already and anyway so it was just three years at that and by the time I ended They had me on 800 Seroquel. They were drugging me so much and I was fighting it so hard because I was trying to stay alive. And, um, yeah, it's just, it talks about that in the documentary too. He was slowly building up the amount of medicine he's giving me. Now I started, like when I escaped, I, I don't take, even half I take like 20 milligrams of something else
2: that amount of Seroquel will make you crazy yourself and mess with your brain so hardcore
1: it's a lethal dose it's definitely a lethal dose if you don't build up to it and also if you're not fighting really hard for your life yeah
0: and what is Seroquel
1: Seroquel is a mood stabilizer it's like for bipolar but like they told me it was for sleep
2: It can be used as that um, for some people, but because there's so, and I'm not a doctor for say, I'm just speaking from my experience from my doctors, um, my psychiatrists that I've had in the past, where they have to use certain pills to balance out other pills. So that can be added for like a sleep thing to make Mm -hmm. you go to sleep. If you're on like, say, Lexapro and uh some you know, other pills and whatnot.
1: Yeah, that I've even had people talk about that since I've left. Say, you know, we worked in the clinic, we couldn't help. Warren Jess was basically the doctor, even though he was using cult doctors. So he had certain men go to college to get the degrees to get the medicine. And if they didn't do what he said, even though he never got the degrees, then they would lose their family. So when I was trying to escape, it was super hard because they would take my records from that cult facility without my signature and try to use it as though I had signed, saying I was crazy.
2: Yeah, and now you're deemed as a person that can't, you know.
1: Yeah, it doesn't matter if you get put in front of a judge and you don't have a family that will stand up for you. You don't have uh, anybody who knows you that will stand The doctors aren't standing up for you. You're probably going to get committed. And I believe that I escaped out a window. You know, I know I have escaped out a window and all that, but right before I ended up in front of a judge. So I still had my rights in place. My adoptive mom who had experience from a different, not that extreme, but like a different group, polygamy group and her, her leaving that, all of that. She, she kind of knew what to look for. Cause we would gone to police officers and they were like, we already signed a paper. She has to go back because of her mental state. Well, my, my adoptive mom, she's more like a peer support specialist. And she said, show me the paperwork. I need to see that signature. Cause she's saying, she had talked to me. She's saying that she hasn't signed anything and she has to sign for you to have her doctor records in a normal facility. So anyway, she fought for me and They couldn't prove that they had taken away my rights because they hadn't actually taken them away yet. They hadn't fully succeeded at that. So I was 26 years old by the time I escaped and the police officers. He did have some police officers in Colorado City and Healdale, but not everywhere. We went to police officers outside of that also. And they didn't recognize that I didn't have that paperwork signed. They just thought if they have the records, they must have got it signed. Yeah, it was horrific. It was so, yeah. I, I liken that part of my story to kind of like Britney Spears a little bit, like how she um, was put in front of a judge, you know, that, that kind of thing. They took away her rights as an adult. Then she has to do what the conservative ship or whatever says. And if I would have been put in those shoes with like a cult background and Warren Jeffs, he, he whoever he puts over me is doing what he says, I would not be – I would have never experienced freedom, for one thing. And I would have never, yeah, had a voice probably again because he would have been controlling me for the rest of my life probably. So I escaped right before that. I actually worked my way to Colorado City in Hildale because it was like a better place to escape from. There's okay. XFLDS people in the town. They have more like that peer support specialist view. Um so when I escaped out the window, locked in solitary confinement and unscrewed the screws, all of that, it was in Colorado City because I already worked my way back there. And then I ran to a family, took side roads, ran to a family that was had just recently left and became XFLDS, all the family members that were still home. And they drove me out of town to this lady in an activist, a small organization, helping people on the outside. And that I, that was the day I met my mom that adopted me
2: now I love that it
1: took two years I went to Tennessee they sent me to Tennessee secretly they got my ID there was a lot of steps we went to Tennessee I did all my paperwork there it kind of goes over a little bit of that in the documentary I did change my name they don't tell me I tell anyone I went to Tennessee it took two years
2: okay
1: change my name my social was legally adopted and then I decided through a series of things like i i couldn't pay my rent because when they changed my social security number they didn't change my ssi in the same month so i ended up talking to my attorney in utah who helped me do that and he said it's interesting cuz i just had an xflds man who who got who became a pilot walk in my office and say the town of colorado city is becoming xflds people People who have left the church, it's turning around, and if anybody's in crisis, here's some airplane tickets. Tell them to come home.
2: I love that. That's so beautiful. Wow. And what was that feeling like to finally be free? If you don't mind me asking.
1: Freedom. What it hit me in Tennessee, um, and I I was so excited, but like at the same time, I'd been in survival for so long, I started to deal really heavily with like. For one thing, I had come off all medicine called turkey and yeah. was hiding and all of that. So, like, I was having a lot of psych- psychological, like, experiences trying to figure out how to even – some days I would not eat all day and I would just stay in my room. And other days I would be, like, around trying to trying to figure it out. So, it was hard. But I, I did, like, you know, I was just thinking in my room, you know, like, I have – I could go to college. I could, you know, I could go to the hospital, and you know, like all these things that I had to ask before if I ever even got to do. So it was just way different, and it was something I never thought I would ever get. Even when I was climbing out the window, I didn't have any hope of succeeding. I just was angry. I I didn't want to give up. I I was stubborn, but it was a good thing because like now I get to experience all these things.
2: Thank goodness you're stubborn, stubborn, <laughs> stubborn women survive and stubborn people survive, call your you survive too. But you know, when you are the person that's like, no, I'm not going to put up with this. No, I'm not going to do this. Um, I'm going to cooperate for a little bit and then I'm going to think about how to get out. Like you are incredible. Um, you are so smart, so resilient. And I am just like, honestly, like I. I'm like I people are blown away by my story, I'm blown away by yours.
1: Oh, thanks.
0: As they say, well well behaved women seldom make history.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's unbelievable. Eight years you lived with that? You said you were twenty six when you were in Tennessee. Yep. You, were you told to like worship Warren Jeffs as you grew up? Yes. I find it just so astonishing. Almost like Scientology. Yeah when you would have your services, he would come out and then everybody would just worship him because he's the...
1: Well, they, they did it different ways than Scientology. But yeah, basically, he was God to the people.
0: This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Brielle Decker. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes.
2: On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell.
0: And I'm Collier Landry.
2: And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast.
0: We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.